News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On today's No Restraint podcast, I have to bring attention to some pretty important stuff that's gone on. Last Thursday, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Vaccines voted unanimously, that's 15 to 0, to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the country's childhood immunization schedule. I am not a fan of the childhood immunization schedule to begin with because I think it combines too many vaccines together and then administers it to very small infants. And I've always objected to that and thought it would be a better idea if these vaccines were really effective to break them down and just use one at a time as the children get a little bit older. The schedule of vaccines, which includes the vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella, that's the MMR vaccine, all lumped together, unnecessarily, mind you. There's tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis. They lump those together as well. And of course, an inactivated polio, which serves as the roadmap of routinely recommended vaccines for kids across the nation. And that's among the many reasons the committee's vote is consequential. You see, state and local governments turn to the CDC's guidance when they're deciding public health policy. The CDC has yet to adopt this guidance, but likely it will in the coming weeks. I'm holding out hope that our own Surgeon General here in Florida will not follow this order. I believe it was both bad medicine and bad policy to add the COVID-19 vaccine to this list. I come to that conclusion for four reasons. First, parents are frustrated with the CDC and its COVID-19 guidance, and for really good reasons. During the pandemic, many parents believed that the CD recommendations, for instance, on quarantine, resulted in local officials locking kids out of school for far too long or even unnecessarily, which resulted in devastating learning loss. But when those parents complained to the schools, education officials said, we're simply following CDC recommendations. So now, while the CDC may be technically correct that inclusion of the COVID-19 vaccine on the immunization schedule is not a mandate, It sure feels like one to many parents, and it sure feels like more buck passing from this influential agency. COVID-19 and the question of when, if ever, to vaccinate kids has become among the most politicized topics in the whole country. Many municipalities and private schools and daycare centers in left-leaning areas will see the CDC's imprimatur as an opportunity to institute mandates. Mandates are concerning for two reasons. First, it's really not clear that they're ethical. The standard rule in medicine is simple. We do not intrude upon individual autonomy unless that intervention provides sufficient benefit to third parties. This means that there must be a large benefit to others, enough so that the loss of autonomy is acceptable. Given that the COVID-19 vaccine 
does not halt the virus transmission, the prerequisite is just not met. The second reason is that mandates will harm vulnerable kids. As of July, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that in several states, Black and Hispanic children under 12 years old were less likely to be vaccinated than white children, and you can see that in numerous charts. If mandates become the norm, unvaccinated children will be displaced to virtual school, homeschool, or perhaps no school at all. The harm to kids from substandard education after nearly two years of disruption far exceeds any gains from compliance. And that harm will disproportionately hurt poor black kids. The same is true for mandates that prevent kids from participating in school sports. Being sedentary is far more damaging for kids' health than not getting the shot. Number two, the CDC's gamble could very well hurt vaccination rates more generally. In an effort to encourage COVID-19 vaccination, the CDC may wind up lowering vaccination rates for polio and measles. Why? Because by adding COVID-19 shots to the schedule, the CDC is tacitly implying that this new vaccine is as important to kids as the combination MMR one. This is absolutely false. Measles can be a devastating childhood illness, but vaccination provides durable, sterilizing immunity. When vaccination rates are high, measles outbreaks can be averted. COVID-19 vaccines, as millions of us have learned, do not prevent you from getting COVID-19. Right now, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, has COVID, despite being boosted with the bivalent booster just one month ago. COVID vaccines may work to lower the risk of severe disease, but for healthy kids, the risk of severe disease is already extremely low. And once a kid recovers from COVID, having had the disease itself provides immunity equivalent to, or maybe even better than, the vaccine. Currently, the CDC estimates that at least 86% of American children have had COVID. For this reason, I, along with policymakers in many advanced nations, think it is reasonable for a parent to vaccinate their child against COVID and also reasonable not to. One of the worst outcomes of the CDC COVID-19 vaccination recommendation would be if parents decide it is unnecessary for their children to get the COVID shot, they will also skip vital vaccines that have been saving lives for decades. Number three, the U.S. is profoundly out of step with peer nations. For example, Denmark has ceased to offer vaccination in healthy kids under the age of 18 and does so only when deemed medically necessary. That's because kids very rarely become seriously ill with Omicron. Sweden has just abandoned its recommendation for vaccinating healthy children above the age of 12. It had never recommended vaccinations for kids 5 to 11 and will only vaccinate children with medical problems. 
What is best for children among our peer nations just may very well be what's best for children here, and the CDC fails to acknowledge that. For males aged 10 to 40, myocarditis caused by the vaccine is an important safety concern, but this appears less common in younger children and is not an issue for the childhood vaccination guidelines. Number four, the CDC is also at odds with parents' preferences. Data that was presented by the CDC show that only 6.9% of kids between the ages of six months and four years have gotten even a single dose of the vaccine. Just 38.5% of kids between 5 and 11 have gotten one dose. Most parents have chosen not to give the COVID-19 vaccination to their kids. The CDC's endorsement further puts the public health establishment not just out of step with other nations, but with most American parents. This risks deepening the lack of trust and authority in this agency. To this day, the CDC advises Americans who were exposed to COVID to wear a mask in their own home for 10 days around others. It's no wonder that the CDC has badly lost credibility with many Americans. In 1998, The Lancet published a deeply flawed study that should have never appeared claiming vaccines were linked to autism. Eventually, it was found to be fraudulent. Nevertheless, parents and activists ran wild with it. It has taken decades to fight the false connection between vaccines and autism, and it's still a battle not fully won. We need the public to believe in medically essential vaccines and be willing to give them to their children. To add an unnecessary and controversial vaccine to this list, at the risk of some states or local actors mandating it, undermines the broader good of public health. Look, both long COVID and post-vaccine syndrome are driven by something called spike protein load and damage from spike exposure and therefore share a high degree of overlap in treatment. The American people are becoming acutely aware of this and therefore they are very suspicious of the CDC. Doctors notice slight differences in certain clinical presentations between the two conditions that would be long COVID and post-vaccine syndrome. It seems that with the vaccine injured, the predominant symptom and the predominant organ is neurological. In an observation by a Dr. Marek, Roughly more than 80% of patients with vaccine injury have some degree of neurological impairment. Marek said post-vaccine symptoms can also be harder to treat than long COVID and are more persistent, with some patients presenting with debilitating symptoms for almost two years. Therefore, treatment for people with post-vaccine symptoms are more aggressive and more brain-targeted. It seems like long COVID does get better with time. While some patients persist, it seems to be somewhat self-resolving to a degree. The problem with the vaccine injured is that it can persist. There are patients who were vaccinated in December of 2020 
who are still severely, severely injured. The two are similar, but we put much more emphasis on the vaccine injury because it's a much more difficult disease to treat. These are important facts, and they're being kept from the American people. And I feel as though it's my responsibility to make sure that I bring as much of this information to you on my No Restraint podcast as possible. Statisticians argue that the number of people suffering from post-vaccine syndromes are much higher than we've been told. Canadian molecular biologist Jessica Rose estimated an underreporting factor of 31, adding up to an estimation that more than 27 million Americans may have suffered from adverse events following vaccination. The vaccine injured are massive. They're underserved and their needs are not being met. However, many doctors are looking to change this situation. The FLCC has been at the forefront in treating COVID-19, long COVID, and post-vaccine symptoms. No large-scale studies have been done on treatment for post-vaccine symptoms. Based on clinical observations and patient feedback and extensive research, the FLCC has released its updated treatment recommendations. The FLCC co-founder and chief scientific officer, Dr. Paul Marek, told the Epic Times that recommendations are always subject to change based on patient feedback, as well as research on a new treatment option. However, to understand the treatment options, one first needs to understand how spike protein is causing damage. Long COVID and post-vaccine syndrome share a high degree of overlap, as the two conditions have both been linked to long-term spike protein presence, and the symptoms are often similar too. The core problem in post-vaccine syndrome is chronic immune dysregulation. Spike proteins can cause chronic inflammation. Studies have shown that inflammation can lead to cell stress, to damage, and even death. Cells make up tissues. Different tissues form organs, and organs are part of our own physiological systems. Therefore, spike protein injuries are a systemic syndrome. Spike proteins trigger in chronic inflammation by causing these immune dysregulation. Spike proteins enter immune cells, switch off normal immune responses, and trigger pro-inflammatory pathways instead. The normal immune response for infected immune cells is to replace or to release type 1 interferons. This gives signals to other immune cells to enhance defense against viral particles. But spike protein reduces this signaling in infected cells, and in uninfected cells will also take in and become damaged by the spike protein as the infection goes out of control. Marek said that a critical aspect of long-term spike protein damage is that it inhibits autophagy, your body's way of recycling damaged cells. Usually when cells have been infected with viral particles, the cells will try to break these particles down and remove them as waste. 
studies on SARS-CoV-2 viruses have shown that autophagy processes are reduced in infected patients with spike proteins present many months after the initial exposure. The spike protein is a really wicked protein. It switches off autophagy, and that's why the spike can stay in the cells for such a long time. The immune dysfunction caused by spike protein not only causes inflammation, but also may cause and contribute to cancer proliferation and autoimmunity. Studies have shown that spike can reduce and exhaust the action of T and natural killer cells. These two cell types are responsible for killing infected cells and cancerous cells. Therefore, a reduced cellular immunity from T and natural killer cells can contribute to an untimely clearance of spike-infected cells. Damage from spike can lead to damaged DNA, and studies have shown that spike can also reduce DNA repair. Psychological and environmental stress, such as ultraviolet light, pollutants, oxidants, and many other factors can routinely can routinely damage DNA, requiring constant repair. Damaged DNA puts cells at risk of becoming cancerous, and these cells should be killed to prevent cancer formations. However, with reduced T and natural killer cell activity, this may lead to unchecked proliferation of potentially cancerous cells. Other dysfunctions that have been reported following vaccinations include autoimmune diseases. These diseases may be linked to the spike proteins having a high level of molecular mimicry, meaning spike proteins have many regions similar to other proteins in the human body. So when the immune system attacks the spike protein due to structural similarities, the antibodies produced against spike protein regions may also react against the body's own proteins and tissues. Studies have shown that antibodies made against the spike protein can also bind to and attack self-tissues. Spike protein causes fatigue. It's linked with dysfunction in the mitochondria, colloquially known, colloquially known as the powerhouse of the cell Mitochondria are responsible for harnessing energy from the sugar we ingest. Human neural cells treated with spike protein have been shown to produce more reactive oxygen species, and this is an indication of mitochondrial dysfunction, suggesting possible reduction in energy production. People with long COVID and post-vaccine syndromes often experience chronic fatigue, brain fog, exercise intolerance, and muscle weakness. These symptoms are also often seen in people with mitochondrial dysfunction, indicating a possible link. Spike protein damage to blood vessels and organs has shown to be particularly damaging to cells that line the blood vessels. Spike proteins can bind to ACE2 and CD147 receptors and trigger inflammatory pathways. These receptors are particularly abundant in cells of the blood vessels, heart, immune system, 
ovaries, and many other areas. Spike protein can therefore trigger inflammation and damage in blood vessels and its related organs, leading to systemic injury. Marek said that spike protein injury is closer to a systemic syndrome rather than a disease. It's not a disease. It doesn't fit the traditional model of a disease. This is a syndrome which affects every single organ. The spike goes everywhere. So this is a multi-systems disease and it doesn't follow the traditional paradigm of a disease, which is one symptom, one diagnosis. Since long COVID and post-vaccine symptoms are both associated with spike protein presence, the first-line treatments recommended by the FLCCC therefore focus on two main steps. The first step is to remove spike protein. The second step is to reduce its toxicity. The body will then heal itself, and this is the primary treatment goal. Most of the first-line treatments have focused on clearing out the spike protein by reactivating autophagy, a process that is downregulated by spike protein. Lifestyle implementations can boost autophagy through intermittent fasting and photobiomodulation. Photobiomodulation can be done by exposing oneself to the sun, since sunlight contains infrared rays that boost autophagy in cells. Intermittent fasting, which I participate in, can result in multiple health benefits, including improved insulin sensitivity, weight loss, reduced inflammation and autoimmunity, and many, many more. However, it should be noted that intermittent fasting is not recommended for people younger than the age of 18, as it can prevent growth. Pregnant and breastfeeding women are also not recommended to fast intermittently. People with diabetes and kidney disease are also recommended to check with their primary care physicians before considering intermittent fasting. While intermittent fasting may not be suitable for everyone, there are other treatment options that can boost autophagy and reduce spike protein toxicity. Ivermectin has been highly recommended by the FLCCC and many doctors treating COVID, long COVID, and post-vaccine syndrome on the basis that it's inexpensive, highly accessible, has a high safety profile, and a high response rate. The drug is highly dynamic and has also been documented with a variety of functions, antiviral, antiparasitic, anti-inflammatory, and also boosts autophagy. Ivermectin can help with the removal of spike proteins. Studies have shown that ivermectin has a higher affinity for the spike protein and will bind to its regions, effectively neutralizing and immobilizing it for destruction. Ivermectin also directly opposes the pro-inflammatory pathways that are triggered by the spike protein, including the NFKB pathway that activates inflammatory cytokines and toll-like receptor 4. FLCCC doctors reason that ivermectin and intermittent fasting can act synergistically to remove the body spike protein and recommend taking ivermectin with or just after a meal. 
Ivermectin is also able to bind to ACE2 and CD147 and therefore blocks spike protein from entering and triggering inflammation in cells that display these receptors. Studies have also shown that ivermectin can maintain the energy produced by mitochondria, even under conditions of low oxygen. Corey said that around 70 to 90% of his post-vaccine syndrome patients responded to the drug generally within 10 days. Patients can be classified as ivermectin responders or non-responders. The non-responders are actually a group of patients that are more difficult to treat. Patients that are non-responsive, typically after four to six weeks of treatment, are recommended to go on a more aggressive treatment. When overdosed, ivermectin can cause confusion, disorientation, and possibly even death. However, the drug has a high safety profile when used in reasonable doses. There is little literature on its use in pregnant women, so the FLCCC cautions against the use of it in pregnancy. Ivermectin has continually proved to be astonishingly safe for human use. Indeed, it is such a safe drug with minimal side effects that it can be administered by non-medical staff and even illiterate individuals in remote rural communities provided that they have had some very basic appropriate training. Low-dose naltrexone has recently made the news as an option for long COVID treatment. We've been using it for many, many months, says Marek. Low-dose naltrexone is a very potent anti-inflammatory drug. It's been used in many chronic inflammatory diseases. Clinically, FLCCC doctors have seen many of their patients' symptoms improve following treatment with LDN, although it may take months for the benefits to be clearly visible. LDN has an anti-inflammatory effect, and studies show that it is able to block inflammatory toll-like receptors, reduce the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and block inflammatory cascades. LDN works to balance the activity between Th1 and Th2 type cytokines. Clinically, LDN has been shown to be effective against post-COVID and post-vaccine neurological symptoms. This is because LDN also reduces neuroinflammation. Resveratrol is a nutraceutical commonly found in fruits. It can be found in peanuts, pistachios, grapes, red and white wine, blueberries, cranberries, and even cocoa and dark chocolate. It can also be obtained through vitamins, though there is generally a low bioavailability of resveratrol. And therefore, the FLCCC recommends it be taken with quercetin. Resveratrol is anti-inflammatory and antioxidizing. Low-dose aspirin is another drug that's been very helpful. Aspirin is an anti-inflammatory and an anticoagulant. The drug therefore reduces the chance of microclot formation in the blood vessels. Studies have shown that it can also reduce pro-inflammatory pathways, oxidative stress, and it is also neuroprotective. Neurocognitive impairment has been a major complaint of many people suffering from post-COVID vaccine syndromes. This includes brain fog and peripheral neuropathic pain. 
Studies on Alzheimer's disease patients have shown that taking aspirin was associated with slower cognitive decline, although results have been conflicting across different studies. Animal studies showed that rats that were given aspirin had lower cognitive decline. Studies in rats with damaged nerves suggested that aspirin may also be neuroprotective due to its anti-inflammatory nature. The use of aspirin may cause side effects in pregnancy, such as bleeding, and melatonin, and all other kinds of things that have been shown to be effective with many of the disorders, diseases, syndromes, and effects that so many Americans are facing today. I brought you this sort of scientific no-restraint podcast because we're not getting the information that we need to make decisions for ourselves and for our families. And I've always felt it is my responsibility to make sure to share information with you that I have researched and found quite valid and have yet to see studies that deny or dispel the belief that many of the subjects I talked about in today's No Restraint podcast actually will help. And if it will help, shouldn't we be the ones to decide whether or not to use these treatments? Oh, that's right. Body autonomy. That's all they ever scream about when it comes to abortion. But when it comes to COVID and vaccines, your body autonomy, they'd rather see go out the window. Not on my watch.